Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Abby Reynolds, a mum of two who is the perinatal lead at the non-profit organisation Wednesday's Child. Abby struggled with an eating disorder during her pregnancy and it has made it her mission to help other women who struggle with similar issues and to increase awareness about the commonality of disordered behaviours during pregnancy. Hello Abby. Hi Hannah, thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming, it's lovely to speak to you. I'm super excited, I think this is such an important topic that's often not spoken about for some reason yeah there's there's a lot of silence around it which considering it's actually really prevalent a bit bonkers really and I guess that's why I've tried to start raising awareness through my work with Wednesday's Child starting to get it on the radar of perinatal professionals I guess brilliant just before we start I guess you mentioned Wednesday's Child there did you want to just explain what Wednesday's Child is if people haven't heard of the organization yeah, sure. So Wednesday's Child is a, a not-for-profit eating disorder support organisation um, founded um, by somebody with lived experience of an eating disorder. We do all sorts of things. We run courses and programmes for sufferers and carers. We produce e-learning modules for a range of professionals and those experiencing an eating disorder. We run a befriending programme, which is which is just a fantastic opportunity for people to get support that I suppose it's in between, you know, professional support and the support you might get from friends and families, that real empathetic lived experience support from people who've kind of been through it and come out the other side. And we do training and podcasts and yeah, all sorts of things, just trying to help anybody who is impacted by eating disorder. Amazing. I think it sounds fantastic work what you're doing. I especially like the fact that you do all the training and stuff like that. And I really do think there's something to be said about lived experience and kind of using that lived experience to help others, because I think there's a level of sort of understanding that you get from that lived experience that you can't learn from a textbook. Absolutely. And we, and we you know, we have qualified practitioners as well and eating disorder specialists who offer appointments and things but it is it's to have that combination of the kind of professional expertise and the lived experience is is so important you know there's still such a way to go including enough of of the lived experience voice and and valuing that I suppose in healthcare generally yeah I completely agree with you about the importance and I think sometimes there's almost a bit of shame around you know saying oh yeah I do actually have lived experience of an eating disorder but in with that shame that then says to people that have an eating disorder at the moment that there is something to be ashamed of which I think you know you and I both we've both had lived experience and that's why I'm always shouting from the rooftops and yeah you know I had an eating disorder and I'm I'm now gone through recovery and everything there's nothing to be ashamed of yeah the more it's spoken about and yeah just the more these genuine lived experiences are shared in really key places you know the better hopefully the awareness generally will be and the support will hopefully come to match come to match that need yeah absolutely well talking of 
lived experience. <laughs> um, I think a great place to start would be to talk about your lived experience of your eating disorder and how that coincided with your pregnancy. Yeah, absolutely. So I didn't develop my eating disorder initially when I was pregnant. So I developed my eating disorder age 32. Um, and I was already, uh, you know, uh, married, I already had a toddler, I had a kind of pretty normal, busy life, really. I, you know, I had loving family, good friends, range of interests. And I was, I guess, yeah, kind of a, a proper grown up, as it were. And my life was kind of turned upside down, really, within the space of a few weeks, realistically, mm-hmm. um, when I did develop my eating disorder. So, so yeah, when my little boy was about 18 months old, um, I was feeling pretty low in confidence and really isolated. Um, we'd had to move very suddenly right across the country to help care for my ailing father-in-law and my husband was still working away a lot and and I guess I was just sort of lacking in meaningful nourishing company um you know I'd gone from living somewhere where I had I'd been involved a lot in lots of kind of baby groups and I had lots of you know as horrible as the phrase is mum friends um and I moved somewhere where actually it was already a really close-knit community and it was really hard to make friends, basically. And it feels a bit embarrassing to say that, but, I, you know, I just found it really hard mm. to make friends. Um, so I, was, I sort of was, yeah, kind of pretty low on myself. And, and I think I'd been feeling increasingly dissatisfied with my weight and shape since the birth of my little boy. And at this point, I suppose I was bigger than I'd ever been um before which you know was hardly surprising given that my body had just produced a whole new human being um but I suppose in my mind and with our kind of thinness obsessed society (laughs) amplifying my thoughts I I felt I would maybe be happier or healthier and somehow more acceptable if I just took a little less space um this I suppose coincided with something else to become a bit of a perfect storm so my husband and I at this point were quite keen to try for another baby um and I'd seen all the bump about getting into shape to increase my chance of conception and a healthy pregnancy and the importance of not being overweight in inverted commas you know of staying active so I suppose I got curious about what about what that might mean for me um I was technically uh, a little overweight, whatever that means on the BMI chart. And, you know, I really loved my food. Like I ate freely. I ate based on appetite, on taste, just whatever I fancied, really, however much I wanted, whatever was offered or, you know, or was in the cupboard. Um, And I just had absolutely no concept of like calories or macros or what I should or shouldn't be eating or you know, I, I wasn't hugely unfit or anything. I just, I was just well nourished and, you know, I just enjoyed a full range of fruit, of foods. And I don't want to think back to that now. I think I just feel this incredible sort of grief. You know, if I could go back and tell the me then that honestly my relationship with food was pretty darn perfect and didn't need meddling with, you know, I'd shout it as loudly as I could. And the same the same with movement, really. I exercise sometimes, you know, walk, bike ride, you know, swim with my husband, but nothing kind of structured. But 
I decided to experiment with trying to get a bit healthier um, or what, you know, society was telling me healthy was um, a bit fitter, maybe a touch slimmer, perhaps. But I didn't, you know, I didn't have any great goals or intentions or weight loss regimes. I didn't really kind of even think it would work. I just sort of started kind of having slightly smaller portions and, and kind of cutting down on snacks a bit. Um, but I also began running and I soon bought a Fitbit to keep track of what was going in and out, which, to be honest, is probably one of the biggest regrets of my life. <laughs> and, and it's, yeah, it's kind of anyone listening who's been through an eating disorder will, will kind of know, but it's hard to describe exactly how kind of quickly and intensely that shift can go from like an innocent attempt to kind of look after myself you know, and, and how that then turned into really a life-consuming obsession with restriction and over-exercise. And I think, yeah, I, you know, obviously I'm not here to talk numbers, but certainly within the first three months of kind of dipping my toe into eating a bit more mindfully and, and kind of moving my body with a bit more intention, um, I was kind of a third smaller as a person than I, than I had been. Um, and really, every moment of every day was accompanied by a disordered soundtrack of rigidity, restriction, compensation, just this constant rumination around calories and weight and steps. I couldn't sleep properly and I couldn't kind of be really present with the people around me. I just didn't really recognize myself or, or sort of know what was going on. I was just this tightly coiled spring all the time. Um, and I think the thing is when, you know, when that happens, especially when you don't necessarily fit the stereotypical mould of kind of, yeah, being 16, I, I just, you don't necessarily stop and think, oh, gosh, I think this is an eating disorder. I just thought I was just doing a normal, healthy, kind of responsible thing, trying to keep my body in check and make sure I didn't overdo it with food. Um, and I was sort of feeling weirdly kind of proud and relieved that I I was strong enough somehow to override my hunger and, mm -hmm. you know, deprive myself as though that somehow made me a bit just, yeah, a bit more acceptable. Um, and then, you know, I started to get loads of compliments, you know, really well-meaning, of course, but they, you know, you know, whatever, oh, you're so good running every day. Oh gosh, I wish you had your willpower or um, I don't know how you're so good with chocolate. I can never, you know, I can never resist. And, and I suppose that's when the fear of weight gain really kicked in. I think, you know, I'd subconsciously started to absorb the message that I'd somehow become more worthy or acceptable for having made myself smaller mm -hmm. um, and that I wasn't good enough as I was before. And, and I think that is when I started to become really trapped by the illness because I started to feel like my productivity and lovability and, and just value in society were dependent on me sticking to these increasingly inflexible and punishing rituals with food and exercise mm. um and I think you know although I was becoming increasingly aware that the intensity of my thoughts around weight and calories probably weren't healthy and you know that my social life my mood my creativity just my kind of energy my relationships it was all you know starting to um suffer because of the constant demand to you know for my eating disorder to kind of keep the calories in versus calories out balance sheet 
perfectly aligned and you know I was starting to realize it but I just I think I was utterly terrified because in my mind trying to restore some balance would represent me losing control or giving up or, or becoming somehow less again and so I guess kind of life ticked on like that for a few years and my husband was becoming a bit concerned about my focus on weight and rigidity towards food and just how much I was exercising but I suppose without any real intention to do so I I kept the extremes of what I was doing completely secret from him mm. I sort of told myself I've got this under control I don't want to worry him you know I'm just doing good thing for our whole family and you know I'm coping and staying in control it's you know it was keeping my emotions in check so I wasn't making a big fuss about the fact that I was really struggling alone with our 18 month old and and yeah it was like I suppose there was an impenetrable glass wall between me and the life I built for myself so I could Mm. kind of see all the good things in my life on the other side of it you know the people I loved the home we owned the people who cared for us and just kind of the normal richness of a human life um you know the ups and downs and silliness and tears and all the rest of it but I just couldn't engage with it and but I sort of thought okay well yeah maybe I'm missing out on the good stuff but at least not letting the bad stuff bring me down or, or kind of rock the boat with my family by having my vulnerabilities exposed um but basically by then my periods had stopped you know quite a few years before and just through my inability to nourish my body adequately um, and, you know, as I said, we were really keen to have a second baby. And so this was obviously a real practical hurdle. And so I went to my GP and to several GPs, um, to fertility specialists. And when I quietly inquired whether the fact I'd lost a lot of weight and was maybe exercising a little bit too much, whether, you know, that might be impacting my fertility, they all dismissed me with reassurances that because my BMI was still technically healthy, the last thing they would recommend would be to eat more, exercise less. They said, yeah, that is the opposite of what we're here to advise people. And so that of course was music to my eating disorders ears and kind of more evidence to my wonkly wired mind that of course there was nothing wrong with me, that I was lazy for even considering doing less exercise or really greedy for even thinking about eating more, you know, um and in hindsight I went to those appointments desperate for someone to sort of just say enough you know to just tell me to eat to give me permission to eat and to rest because I just I couldn't do it I you know I I couldn't seem to allow myself that um but I yeah I certainly wasn't given a get out of jail free card that easily And, and you know this wasn't down to really the fault of individuals at all I'm not here to kind of bash GPs or fertility specialists it is simply there's just not the education and training that means there is a deep enough understanding of these conditions Mm. that when someone presents you know whatever in a normal BMI or 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 you know a grown-up mother whatever that that you know that yeah that that's sort of seen as you know possible actual legitimate person with an eating disorder rather than I know you're old enough to to know better or yeah or you're not quite thin enough for it to be concerned so that was really tough and you know basically eventually by 
sheer luck, <laughs> a total miracle, I conceived, even though I hadn't had a period for, for wow. three years. And, you know, I can't, I can't tell you how fortunate I feel that, that we were that lucky. And, and of course, we were beyond thrilled. But I was also really terrified. I think the thought of my body growing or changing was really unbearable and horrifying you know and I, I felt really ashamed of that because I just thought hang on this you know and I, you know that that hadn't been the case at all when I when I had my first son you know I was just really excited and I loved my body growing and I loved buying maternity clothes and I loved seeing what came next and just whereas that so I kind of this time I knew something was really wrong because mm-hmm. I just thought this this isn't me this <laughs> no no this yeah. isn't me sorry to interrupt but um just before you go on I just wanted to kind of pick up on what you were saying before about sort of you know you'd gone from a really free relationship with your food and kind of you know a, a normal relationship and you had a you know you've said you had a wonderful family and friends and everything yeah. and I just think it, it was so kind of moving to hear you say how it would then became behind like a glass wall and you know everything I guess that it seemed like the eating disorder promised you and you know if you're smaller then people will like you more or you'll be more accepted or you, you know you will be better actually it just takes everything from you and I think you know what you said about kind of not being able to stop and when you went to the doctor just hoping that they would say you know something is a bit strange here and you know giving you that acceptance because I think that's one of the most difficult things isn't it when you're in sort of that kind of ambivalent stage of I think something's wrong but you know potentially it's just me thinking something's wrong so I guess the the question that I kind of wanted to ask you was fantastic that you have conceived and that you know that I'm so happy for you but I guess the the main you think that's what you were going to get onto was kind of the major differences for you from your first pregnancy to then kind of the second one because I can imagine they were kind of worlds apart in terms of you know the process of it. Absolutely I mean I think you know, the first thing I'd say is I was reading through my maternity records recently and, and in one of the in the notes from one of my kind of later midwife appointments, so I must have been six or seven months pregnant by this point, it just says, um, Abigail says she does not feel pregnant at all. And and it that absolutely breaks my heart because that is how I felt. I was so disconnected from my body and mind. Or rather, my rather my yeah, my body was disconnected from my mind, and I just yeah, I I didn't feel I I did feel the kind of real um kind of hormone enhanced love for my unborn child and that drive to protect, but I just I just didn't engage with it. I remember I sort of got to seven or eight months, and I just thought, God, I haven't got any of the kind of baby grows out or done any of the nesting and obviously it's a little bit different the second time anyway because you're kind of running around after a little one already and um it's maybe not quite such a novelty but but yeah I just I just was completely unable to kind of see past this fog of eating disorder noise and the constant daily grind of calories in calories out and fitting in all this insane exercise that you know I shouldn't have been doing anyway especially when pregnant that honestly I just never had these moments to just sit with my feet up and think 
how exciting we're going to have a new baby and you know chatting to my oldest son about you know it all it yeah it was really um I think yeah this second pregnancy I just I felt like I was possessed like I just felt like I was possessed by a force that somehow overrode every intuitive instinctive thought or feeling or urge I had you know in order to protect this arbitrary number on the scale and definitely when I first found out I was pregnant for the second time I was just I was really hopeful that maybe this like maternal hormonal love my unborn child which I had experienced the first time around would somehow just like reset my body and mind that mother nature would kick in and you know factory settings would be restored but I think I just had underestimated the strength of my illness you know I know that (laughs) all of us trying to raise awareness of eating disorders are very keen to get that message you know out that it's, it's not just mind over matter you can't just kind of um decide to snap out of an eating disorder and of course I knew that but I think yeah I think I just had this I suppose false optimism that yeah being pregnant would just make everything fine and and I'd just be able to kind of crack on with it all and, and forget that there'd ever been any kind of blip with my eating um and basically I just you know I was so torn because I desperately desperately wanted to keep my baby safe and well mm. And yet I felt utterly tortured any time I nourished myself or tried to rest. And I think, you know, I just felt such a deep shame and fear that even my love for my baby couldn't overcome the compulsions to overexercise and nourish myself. And I, you know, I felt like the worst mother in the world. I really did. I just felt wholly undeserving of this little creature growing inside me and, so disconnected from my body and its needs I couldn't fathom how I could be so selfish as to not eat and rest properly when another life was dependent on that food and rest I just the shame I felt was really really debilitating and dangerous you know I was pretty open with my midwife from the get-go about this mental this mental battle that was at play you know about my determination to prioritize my baby's health but the struggle to do so practically Mm. I think you know a lot of us know that there's a big difference between knowing what you need to do and actually being able to do it you know that that paralysis um but I I think that is why you know your the work that you're doing is so incredibly important because I, I mean, I, I've never been, you know, pregnant myself, but I can imagine that that feeling of shame and just wanting to stop because you know that the potential damage that it could be doing, I can imagine that that is so unbelievably powerful. And that just shows how powerful an eating disorder is in that you yeah. can't just snap out of... You know, so before I was pregnant, I think I always thought I could stop if I really wanted to. You know, I sort of thought, okay, I'm not loving this. It's really intense. But, you know, I'm managing, you know, I'm not I'm not dangerously underweight and then no one's too worried about me. But, you know, I, I'm sure if things got... You know, I'm sure if I needed to stop, I could. And I think getting pregnant really distilled for me just how impossible that felt I was like oh there there was literally no 
better situation for me to kind of recover for mm. and yet here I am still flogging myself and still starving myself and I think that is when the hopelessness kind of kicks in because you're like oh man I really am trapped like mm. I there isn't a way out here um and I think you know what I did try to do was was try to really talk to my midwife as I said and and um it can be really hard to talk about what's going on in your head especially I suppose when the compulsions and thinking are so at odds with the needs of your baby and it, it you know it's so hard to articulate in the first place um and those feelings of shame and fear are, are a massive barrier you know but I did open up and I suppose because I was I was scared for my baby and scared for me and you know, I was so painfully aware of how different my experience of this pregnancy was compared to my first but unfortunately you know because of a lack of awareness and training not because of anything she as an individual did wrong she always just measured my bump and reassured me that you know the baby was growing fine so I must be managing okay um there was you know understandably a really strong focus on physical health particularly physical health with the baby but I was largely made to feel that my mental symptoms were irrelevant, I suppose. Um, And as time went on, it became clear that the baby was thriving despite my own health deteriorating um, and my illness escalating as I kind of failed to to gain any of the weight required to keep me personally well, while any nutrition I was taking on was going to the baby. And honestly, and I, I think I've, said this before in my work but I really did feel increasingly like an incubator Mm. like my role was simply to make sure the baby was fine um and that my own mental and physical health were at best of secondary importance and at worst wholly unworthy of attention and and that just fed more and more into the beliefs I had about being undeserving of Mm. nourishment and rest for me not just for the baby yeah Um, that's what I was just going to say was I can imagine again kind of what we picked up on earlier about that feeling of wanting someone to just say you know this isn't okay we're going to help you I can imagine if they were only focusing on the baby you just felt even more of you know it must just be in my head and there must be nothing wrong yeah and uh, you know and when I was six months pregnant I had a meeting with a consultant obstetrician because I um we needed to discuss uh, a c-section and um I think, you know, much as I've been open with my midwife, I maybe I hadn't been clear enough, but this, you know, on this occasion, I said to the obstetrician, I definitely have an eating disorder and I need help, you know, and I remember my face was burning with shame because I just thought, oh my God, what is wrong with me? I'm a, you know, whatever, a 37 year old woman. And I, yeah, I'm having to say this to someone and, 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 and her response, you know, her literal words were, you're an intelligent woman, you know you need to eat for the baby, what you need to do is park the eating disorder till after the baby's born, you know, as though it was this making. I've selfishly kind of, yeah, chosen to, uh, to, to kind of live by, and, and, and there was also that implication that once I'd had the baby, I could do whatever I wanted, you know, yeah. that, that she didn't care about me, let's just get that baby, for, you know, and so then by the time I was, eight months pregnant I really was at kind of crisis point mentally I just I was just desperate and I went to my GP again and I 
you know, I did beg for help. I, I, I just begged, I cried and I begged. Um, and she referred me to eating disorder services. At last, my initial assessment showed that I was really poorly, both kind of mentally and physically. And I was put on medication immediately. And I was um, then, I then started intensive community treatment which, you know, was undoubtedly life-saving, you know, multiple appointments every day, you know, um, meal support, psychological support, psychiatrist, nurse, you know, dietitian. Um, to then everyone was just pretty panicky because, you know, I was about to give birth mm -hmm. and I'd just been diagnosed with this really severe mental illness. Um, and yeah, everyone really was in panic mode because, I suppose the eating disorder team, you know, they said themselves they'd never really worked with anybody who was pregnant before. And the kind of perinatal side of things were saying, huh, we didn't think you could get an eating disorder when you were pregnant. And so then there was this weird void where I was like, okay, not feeling like anybody's quite um, got me here. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, you know, the, I, yeah, so I started treatment and um, yeah, and then I had this new challenge of, of trying to navigate that whilst giving birth trying to heal from a c-section when my body was incredibly low on resources trying to navigate the minefield that was how to feed my baby and um, you know I breastfed my older son and felt like I'd be a selfish failure if I didn't do the same for my second baby and I kind of felt like the only way I deserved to eat was if those calories were going to breast milk um and I was just giving, given so much conflicting advice, you know, my eating disorder team were really keen for me to kind of save the calories that, that are required to breastfeed and, and to bottle feed instead. So I could kind of get some sleep. So my partner could be more involved in, in kind of um, making sure I was getting well as well. Um, but obviously then you get the kind of midwives and health visitors pushing the breast is best message. So it was really blurry. You know, I, I was also juggling my then five-year-old and um, yeah, it was, it was really intense. And, you know, I'd find myself, yeah, breastfeeding with one arm and having blood taken from, from the other or, you know, having a screaming baby on my lap while I was sort of crying my way through a sandwich in front of my dietitian or, you know, it, it, it was really distressing you know, but obviously having said that, I was hugely fortunate to get that level of support. I honestly don't know how people do it, you know, when when they're kind of endlessly fobbed off or can't access treatment. Um, and I, yeah, it's, I couldn't really see the bigger picture at the time. You know, I couldn't see that getting well myself would be beneficial to my whole family. And so that short-term instability or disruption to my children's lives was worth a much happier, healthier future for us all. Oh. The intensity of the thinking anxiety, so overwhelming. And just each day was so full of feeding, of school runs, of appointments, of just this battering from my eating disorder that I just, I couldn't zoom out. Mm. So then after a year of trying to recover at home with, you know, admittedly amazing support. Um, but with all the demands that came with that, I, I reached crisis point and I was really hopeless. I, you know, I was suicidal and um, 
there wasn't a bed available in the eating disorder unit because my weight wasn't low enough. Um, but I was admitted to a mother and baby mental health unit where I stayed for the next five or six weeks. And I was really thankful to be in a safe place because I knew I couldn't really keep myself safe at home anymore. And I was really glad that my baby could stay with me. But there were a lot of challenges that came from being an inpatient in a unit which was not an eating disorders unit. Mm. Um, I mean, unfortunately, again, because of a serious and ultimately dangerous lack of education and training around eating disorders, even amongst specialist mental health nurses, I felt very much like an anomaly and an outsider on the unit. And the staff, in their own words, told me they knew nothing about supporting someone with an eating disorder and told me I would have to write my own care plan and you know the day I came in the charge nurse said to me oh you're very lucky we never normally take women with eating disorders because they're not really a serious enough mental illness and I just thought hang on a second a why would you say that to somebody who has literally just come in suicidal desperate to kind of finally relinquish control but also it's just sheer ignorance you know mm. as we know anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric yeah. condition so this lack of education it, it, I felt I felt it at so many different points through my journey and I think that is what's really um spurred me on you know to kind of try in my own small way to increase awareness and I'm really lucky that my role at Wednesday's Child kind of allows me to do that and has allowed me to yeah start to um share some of my experiences and some kind of practical guidance and things with with professionals. I'm always interested you know when people say about raising awareness and stuff I always like to ask people you know if you could I guess in this case if you could have the situation again what would have been the way to help you? To be honest you know I still don't 100% know what what would have worked or what wouldn't have worked at certain points but there's plenty that I would um I suppose want healthcare professionals working with women and their families during this time to to be aware of and I suppose you know firstly just that eating disorders thrive in secrecy and isolation and shame and there are so many barriers which might prevent a woman with an eating disorder from being able to share her struggles and concerns mm. with, with a professional. Um, not least kind of the fear of, yeah, being judged to be selfish or unfit as a mother or, you know, having their baby taken away, you know, just there, there's so, yeah, there's, there's just so many barriers which would stop a woman opening up that, if and when a woman does start to sort of share concerns about her own mental health, I think the most important thing is to make sure that she knows that her mental and physical health is just as important, if not more important than that of the baby. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that baby and ultimately that child is, is not going to thrive, you know, if, if they have a parent who is entrenched in an eating disorder or you know not thrive to their fullest and you know I think that's a really important thing for anybody working with women during this period to remember that you know mother and baby come as a package you can't yeah I think 
yeah, I think um, I think just anything you can do to help build trust with a woman you're working with um, and to just really create that environment of openness and safety is a huge start. So the last thing you want to do really is make a woman feel like they're making a fuss or that maybe... Um, you know, you're not the right person to talk to or, or anything, you know, yes, there may be situations where other professionals will be required to kind of step into the picture. But whoever you are, if somebody begins to open up and reach out about, you know, an eating difficulty or concern about, you know, their relationship with exercise or anything else, be ready to listen mm-hmm. and and ask relevant questions like that was a huge thing for me when I when you first get pregnant you have your first appointment with a midwife you fill in this she goes through and he or she goes through a massive questionnaire with you to kind of you know to get a full history of, of your physical health and your family and everything else and I looked through it and you know it's 13 pages of questions and there are only two questions that relate to food or exercise and one is what do you know about healthy eating during pregnancy? And the other is what do you know about the benefits of physical exercise during pregnancy? Now, bearing in mind that, you know, around 10, I think it's nearly up to 13% of women who are pregnant or in the postpartum period would screen positive for an eating disorder. A significant chunk of those will have either, you know, a really, will be doing excessive exercise you know I, I could tell them the benefits of doing exercise in pregnancy what I couldn't do is work out how to stop doing too much you know mm. but no one ever asked me about that and you know to say oh you know um do you feel able to eat healthily or whatever well you know if you if you have orthorexia or something then actually you have a rather warped not warped view of what healthy is but you know you focus almost too much on eating healthily and and you know to the detriment of you know of your mental and physical health and you know and and anybody who is suffering from an eating disorder is likely to be in a situation where their mood is directly and dramatically impacted by what they have or haven't eaten or how much they've moved their body and if you don't ask relevant nuanced questions chances are you won't get relevant answers and someone I spoke to recently said you don't see what you don't know and it's exactly that, you know, if you don't have an accurate sense of how eating disorders manifest, or even have an awareness that you can have an eating disorder when pregnant, then you're unlikely to be able to pick up on indicators that someone in your care might be struggling, whether or not do they open up to you. And, um, you know, it's not just about looking out for physical signs. As we know, eating disorders are mental illnesses, which affect people of all weights and shapes and cultural backgrounds and genders and sexualities and you know and only about six percent of people with an eating disorder are ever clinically underweight yet too often and you know people assume someone can't have an eating disorder because their bmi falls within or over the normal range but if we only consider eating disorders in those who look emaciated we'll miss the vast majority of people suffering and especially, you know, in pregnancy, there's a much higher prevalence of bulimia and binge eating disorder than of anorexia. I mean, there is generally in society, you know, yeah. we know that it's, it's really skewed in terms of the support and awareness being so anorexia focused. Um, but I think, you know, being able to ask relevant questions 
is really important you know being asked you know to ask what kind of thoughts do you experience about your weight and body at the moment you know how much is your quality of life impacted by concerns around food or your body what feelings come up for you when you're making decisions about exercise how able do you feel to eat regularly and enjoy a really wide variety of foods and um, how do you feel about adapting or reducing your exercise during pregnancy you know it's there's so much to it and yet there's these two questions and ping the box is ticked and it's never mentioned again um and I think you know as well a woman may well not open up the first time you ask these questions as we know there is you know part of the disorder can be that ambivalence or that feeling that you need to protect the eating disorder because it's somehow protecting you and and I think just asking a question once and moving on and never thinking about it again can be so dangerous, especially during pregnancy when there are so many shifts and changes going on that actually somebody who may previously have had an eating disorder and is, has since recovered or someone who's never had one before, you know, it could be four or five months into their pregnancy when actually they're really starting to grow and change that that's when the tricky thinking comes in or, you know, or they're thinking, oh, I haven't had that thought for a long time. That feels... Mm, a bit worrying but actually if no one's bothering to ask you because they checked when at your booking appointment that you were a healthy BMI and Mm. you knew what exercise did yeah yeah there's a there's not much of a safety net (laughs) yeah and that was one of the questions that I I really wanted to kind of speak to you about was a potential relapse or you know something along those lines of if they're not asking those questions, have you ever had an eating disorder before? Because I can imagine going through a pregnancy, there's a lot of instances where, you know, your your body's being constantly scrutinized, your weight is going up, you've got things, you might have food craving, cravings, morning sickness, yeah. there's so many things that could potentially trigger those so, thoughts. Okay. This is an awful thing to say, but I remember, so I, I never really had proper morning sickness, I, I just sort of had a bit of nausea. And I remember genuinely, looking at my friends who were sort of you know all the other mums in the surgery I was saying oh I can't keep anything down at the moment I remember thinking god I'm so envious that would make losing weight so easy and then you catch yourself having this thought and you're like god that's really that's really not right Mm. but if no one you know and you're so ashamed of that that unless somebody actually asks you about what you do think and feel about whatever it is your morning sickness or um people commenting on your size and shape all the time or you know your stretch marks your boobs growing your appetite you know then all those things all those thoughts you have around them just stay inside and sort of feed on themselves and multiply because you're not able to tell anybody um and I think you know even the idea the fact that your identity shifts so much as you become a new parent and you know I know for a long time I was just known as Bertie's mum that's my older son and and actually, so then you sort of think, well, who who even am I? You know, and 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 I think, yeah, as you say, there are so many big changes and potential triggers that even if somebody had, you know, has had an eating disorder and is a really robust recovery, you know, that's going to test that to the limits, really. I'd say, um, and I think, you know, the reality the reality is, I was reading this the other day that over 90% of women with disordered eating are not identified by healthcare professionals during pregnancy. So unfortunately, until, you know, this awareness and education really starts to um, ramp up, 
a lot of the responsibility unfortunately does fall on the individual to kind of be aware of you know these thoughts as they pop up and and, and what that might mean and how your behaviors might be reflecting those thoughts and I think it's just more important than ever to just be really honest I suppose with yourself and with those around you um and just yeah trying to stop it sort of stop the kind of secrecy um from really I suppose um driving the eating disorder to kind of rear its ugly head again um you know so and even I think being mindful of what triggers might come up and think about them and journal about them and plan you know plan for them talk to somebody about them and say oh I think you know I do think that I'm going to struggle when I have to whatever and move into maternity clothes um maybe you could come shopping with me and and, and kind of we could yeah kind of talk it through as we're doing it and re- you know remembering your reasons to stay well and um and you know there are there are resources out there. You know, at, at Wednesday's Child, we've developed a couple of e-learning modules for women who are pregnant or have recently become a parent. Um, I suppose, yeah, to to try and um, offer some support if you know if they are concerned about um, relapse or or a kind of worsening worsening symptoms during pregnancy. Um, and although you know there is I can't I can't tell you there isn't a danger of this you know there is a danger that when you talk to your midwife or health visitor or obstetrician about any concerns that are coming up you know it may fall on deaf ears but the more you can advocate for yourself and your baby and I suppose get across to them that early intervention and being taken seriously early is going to save everybody a lot of time and money and heartache later on um, but it, it, it's 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 awful. It's awful that you know the responsibility should fall on the individual um, to that degree. Mm, yeah. um, and I think you know a key a key time to be wary of is is after the birth. I think you know for research has shown that for quite a lot of women who who have experienced an eating disorder, you know, being pregnant is actually a really good positive time of being able to feel a bit more you know justified in in eating freely and really listening to their body and and it can feel really motivational um but the relapse rate postpartum is huge I think for various reasons you know that that isn't I'm not trying to make people feel like it's inevitable at all but I think being mindful of of where the risks are can help you kind of gird yourself and and kind of use the support of people around you Mm. when you need it most and you know I think there's partly that risk that you know once the baby's out you feel a bit less justified or you know in in eating plenty or you know the focus of family and friends as well and professionals will move right onto the baby um and yeah you could maybe there's a danger that you could take your eye off the ball or that maybe behaviors could sort of slip under the radar and and that sort of feeling that well actually no one's really worried about me now so I'm I'm probably mm-hmm. fine um and this you know there are so many huge changes that come once the baby's arrived you know everything changes your routines the sleep deprivation kicks in you know the self-doubt the kind of 
comparing yourself to other mums, other babies, how are they managing to get their child to sleep through the night? And I, you know, mine's permanently on the bottle all night. Or um, I think, yeah, I think you can, I think there are pause points where you, I suppose you just need to ask yourself questions like, mm, do I ever eat in secret? Or mm. am I satisfied with my eating patterns? Yeah. And do I feel guilt or shame around how and when I eat? I suppose Um, making sure as well of that open communication especially I think like you've said if you're aware of your you know potential red flags that behaviors are creeping back in being able to you know speak to family or friends whatever and say I think possibly something's kind of going on again Um, yeah and that can feel really hard you know Mm. because you sort of hang on especially because you think oh hang on I I should have this down like I'm in charge of a baby now um but and so yeah there is there will be those feelings of of kind of shame and fear but yeah as you say just just trying to share that with the people that you trust Mm. is a really strong weapon in in kind of not that I'm much up for kind of battle metaphors when it comes to eating disorders but definitely you know it's it's a real tool in protecting yourself from the eating disorder kind of getting a strong stronger grip um I suppose the other thing that might be a concern of someone if they are listening is if that eating disorder does start to creep back is passing those behaviours on to children um and I guess you know have you had those concerns and if you have done anything have you done anything to try and not yeah so I so my kids are now seven and two um and you know while I was kind of really in the kind of throes of recovery and treatment, I am very aware that my behavior at meal times or around food occasions was was not um, a good model. Um, you know, not so much that I, you know, I, I did do all the eating and things, but, um, you know, I was distressed. I'd have panic attacks. I would... Um, hitting my head against you know really not things I would want my children to see and um I suppose part of the reason why it was good for me to go into mother and baby unit was that I could really start to um get a handle on eating regularly and you know and and adequately and plentifully in a space where my seven-year-old my well my then five, six-year-old wasn't seeing me in these peak distress moments. But actually, you know, as time's gone on and I've, I've kind of stuck with the plan, obviously it's never totally linear, but, you know, the more I have eaten and rested and, and, and stuck to regular eating, um, you know, the, the much less of an impact, you know, of a kind of disruptive impact it has on our mealtimes or, or anything. You know, we can now yeah be really spontaneous with food and if we're out in the park and there's a, a nice cafe and spot a nice cake I can grab one with my with my son and, and and share it and not kind of suddenly become really uptight or irritable and I I definitely get concerned and I I think you know I we've really both my husband and I have learned a lot from this process and we really try to encourage our children both of them to be as intuitive as they can in their eating and their movement and 
there is that real temptation, especially when you've kind of had a restrictive eating disorder to kind of get really panicky and anxious that your children aren't eating enough or hang on, why, why, why is he only having half that bowl of pasta? That's not enough. And gosh, what if he's, you know, what if he's restricting like me? And, and, and so there can be that temptation to overthink and, and, and kind of um, go, no, please have a bit more, please have a bit more for mummy. You know, it's really good for you. But actually, if he only wants half a bowl of pasta, he only wants half a bowl of pasta, it'll all even out. Their bodies know what they're doing. They're not questioning their eating yeah. in the way that, that I that I do or have. And and so that kind of for me has been the biggest the biggest shift really is to just be as kind of flexible with my children's eating as possible to really try and help them hold on to that sense that they can trust their body for as long as possible which I am aware will not be forever with diet culture at play so that's been really good and it's been really good for me as well because I've really wanted to model that and um you know that's been a huge part of of my healing in a way not kind of using them but but sort of knowing that I that I want to be able to eat lovely family meals with them without feeling edgy and I want to be able to grab an ice cream when we're on the yeah. beach or whatever and and so that's that's been really beneficial to me and to them you know I, I sort of they're both really happy conf- confident eaters and and I kind of yeah I I do I feel very protective of 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 their kind of eating and exercise and you know my seven-year-old several of his school friends have like fitness trackers on their wrists and I it slightly breaks my heart because I think, hang on, these kids, you know, they run around all mm. playground without thinking about it. They're playing TIG or whatever. I, that obsession with numbers for me nearly killed me. So, I, yeah, I suppose I want to be protective, but kind of also, you know, never take away their agency in, in listening to and trusting their bodies. Yeah. I suppose that's, that's such a nice way of putting it as well in that, you know as children babies whatever we are intuitive eaters which you would you know that's what we should stick with the whole lives but for some well because of diet culture it makes it hard but even learning from them you know how they eat intuitively and exercise intuitively you can imagine that you know is a nice way to reflect on it and that they're helping you as well as you helping them with you know all the other aspects that you're helping them through life with yeah yeah and as well just you know I I never ever make a kind of critical comment about my body or anybody else's body mm. and you know around them yeah um it just it's yeah I think you know however however much you've struggled yourself with an eating disorder I, do, I, I suppose I don't want people to feel like it's inevitable that they're going to pass it on to their children because I don't think that does have to be the case and I think if anything you'll actually be in quite a good position to know you know what what can be damaging for, mm. for children in terms of of food and, and weight concerns and things so I think you know it could potentially of course be another source of that kind of anxiety or shame or guilt oh my goodness I've, I've wrecked my children but I think if you can reframe it as sort of seeing it as an opportunity to really give your child the gift of kind of what you've been through and what you've learned from it then that you know that's kind of a wonderful thing I guess um yeah and I think just holding on to the fact that you you you're important you matter and and even when you're a parent 
prioritizing your needs you know it's not it, you know it's not indulgent or or selfish it is necessary for you mm. and your family and i that's definitely where i fell apart where i just thought i i have to you know basically yeah where i felt like i couldn't express my genuine emotions or i i was so desperate not to unsettle my family or allow my kids to see me upset or scared because I didn't want it to impact them negatively that I ended up damaging all of us to a degree because mm. I just tried to numb it all away with with disordered behaviors and our kids need to know we're human <laughs> yeah and absolutely they need to know that it's safe to feel all the feelings yeah and that we'll love them whatever they feel mm. um and I think, yeah, that, that focus on knowing that as a parent, your needs matter is, is really significant. You know, my, the person who's helped, the professional that's helped me most, I think, throughout this past couple of years has been my health visitor, um, Fiona, who, by her own admission, much like the staff in the hospital said, I don't know anything about eating disorders. But unlike the hospital staff, she said, I... I'm desperate to support you and to learn anything I can about your illness. And if you're open with me, I promise I will do my level best to kind of, yeah, to support you and your family. And um, she's always been there when, you know, on the darkest days, on the brighter days, she's been there equally for me and my family. Um, and I think the biggest thing is that on any appointment where we'd sort of been chatting and, and she could tell I was struggling when she got up to leave or, or I got up to leave she'd stop and and she'd just look me in the eye and say you are important and honestly more than once that made the difference I think to, to me still being here today and mm -hmm. um, just that reminder that you're you are enough as you are and you you will be a good enough parent and um all this pressure and expectation both externally and from yourself can be really damaging so I guess just stay realistic and hopeful and I think it's so important what you've just said I think often people can feel selfish if they you know do something for themselves when they've got a child but ultimately you know it's kind of like when you're supporting someone with an eating disorder if you're not looking after yourself and giving yourself the time and energy that you need then you're not going to be able to um help anybody else um we've got some questions from okay. the listeners what you've been wanting to ask the question is how to deal with pregnancy cravings and how they relate to fears around food yeah so um I think it can definitely throw you, um, you know, if, if whatever you've been restricting X, Y or Z or, or you've sort of given up eating and suddenly your body goes, hello, please, I would like lots of that. Mm -hmm. um, it can really throw you. And um, I think as with a lot of things in parenthood, knowing that these things will pass, but you kind of have to engage with them and go through them, you know. So, you know, if your body for whatever a week two weeks a month just wants loads of carbs just wants big bowls of pasta mashed potato that is totally logical or even if it's not logical 
it's fine. It wants it for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, I know that when you have an eating disorder, you're going to be prone to judge that or question it or try and um, argue your way out of it and be like, no, no, my body doesn't have a clue what it's doing. Um, what it actually wants is whatever, some kind of paleo keto something. No, it doesn't. You know, our bodies have been producing babies for millions of years and I I always kind of find it quite helpful to think of like yeah somebody 300 years ago or even like my granny and her three sisters all of whom lived into their 90s and I you know they they all have just eat they just ate they just ate what they wanted and um especially during pregnancy where you think hang on my body's pretty smart like it's going to grow an actual person so I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt because it knows what it's doing. Um, and, and I suppose just, you know, the more I suppose you try to meddle with or judge your own appetite or cravings, the more you're going to feel tortured. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, and I know how much anxiety will come from eating food, which A, you wouldn't normally eat or B, you know, you just you eat loads of it and then you still want more of it. And it doesn't make sense a lot about pregnancy might not feel like it makes sense but it's part of a bigger picture like it it will all Mm -hmm. it will all fit together and work um but I just would implore you to try and just reduce the amount of torture you put yourself through um and also like your body is smart and, and and if your body's calling out for bags of crisps and chips trying to fob it off with a bowl of cucumber slices like it's just not going to work apart from anything else not only will it kind of be a bit miserable but it just won't work and then you'll end up panicking more because you know it will become this bigger issue and um yeah I don't know if that's a very coherent answer yeah no I think it's it's... hard to trust your body it really is I get that but I, I just think it's kind of got to happen one way or the other you know your body will will kind of kick in and, and and it knows what it needs and so maybe this could be a really good opportunity to um try trusting your body and see what happens you know it can be a real time of experimentation I guess yeah absolutely I, I think it goes back to what we were sort of saying about intuitive eating earlier in that you know if you've not got that now it might be a good time to sort of yeah. try that um and then the other question um was how to support somebody who is pregnant with an eating disorder so I guess what would you have wanted as a professional or as like a partner I think it was as a partner partner yeah so I guess obviously my husband would be (laughs) the better person to ask (laughs) I what I will say that I suppose I can talk about what has been useful um so early on it became really clear that him trying to police my food or exercise would be a disaster for our relationship um it's you know I as an adult you know it is my responsibility to recover even though I didn't choose (laughs) to become ill and he can't he couldn't do it for me he can't eat the food for me he can't make himself sit on the sofa when you know the body's itching for a run you know and so in a way, it, it's kind of a thankless task for, for them to, to be trying to kind of control what you do or don't eat. Um, and it, it, it can really 
harm your relationship because the dynamic just shifts then you know I think I suppose the less yeah the less there's that kind of weird dynamic where um you feel kind of answerable to your partner or you're kind of just eating because you know they've said you should have breakfast or or even just that checking in that oh did you have you had breakfast today you know that kind of it makes my my hairs on you know kind of bristle just at, at the thought of that because I think that slightly feeds into into that idea that you need to keep it secret if you haven't um whereas what we found much more useful was um if you know for me to kind of be open with him and say I've had breakfast I really didn't want breakfast and I feel really rubbish about it and you know um it doesn't feel fair and a lot and that you know we'd sort of agreed that I would be open with him he would kind of accept whatever I've told him or if I said you know I haven't had managed to have breakfast um I know I should or whatever you know for him to then be able to ask questions like oh you know um is there any is there any thinking you want to kind of say out loud to so, so that you can kind of you know um give yourself the reassurance or or the permission or you know and um you know I, I found sometimes I would send him photos of my lunch if I was quite proud that I'd managed to eat x y or z and um rather than him sort of saying oh I'm really proud of you that's great you did the right thing is saying you know I hope you're able to feel proud or how did how did you feel when you did it so it's just always kind of putting the responsibility back on the person but whilst being there as that kind of support um I think as well you know we were lucky because as I say I did get treatment so at times I've asked my therapist to chat to my husband just to kind of I suppose reassure him in a way that they are keeping me safe that there is a plan you know because sometimes you know I'd feed things back that my team had said and my husband like well that what what do you mean they only want you to whatever maintain your weight for now like you need to put on weight and it's knowing that it's really hard I think as a partner to see the bigger picture because you're just desperately scared and you just think I just want them to get well and I want them to do what they need to do right now to get well and so I think wherever possible you know if, if if your partner can get some professional support or just some insight um that's really important because there's a danger they'll feel kind of redundant or impotent in it all because as I say they can't do the eating for you um and you know I think the biggest thing for us was this agreement that we would be open with each other because um hang on sorry I just need to stop a minute (laughs) um I was gonna say yeah okay yeah we you know we had this agreement that we'd be open with other with each other and um oh god sorry um my brain's gone to frazzle that's okay (laughs) we've been talking for a long time (laughs) oh sorry um yes my husband said to me when I was you know having a stressful time you know or if I was shouting and crying or or kind of taking it out on him in a way you know that he he would say you know I would rather you screamed and shouted at me all day than then kind of bottled these feelings up or um or pretended everything was fine you know he said I've never felt less close to you 
than when you were kind of keeping everything a secret and claiming everything was fine because I could see it wasn't fine and it broke my heart that that you you couldn't tell me and I think that was a real turning point for us that 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 feeling that I could tell him anything and he wouldn't write me off that you know he would accept that that is what I was feeling or thinking that that was my reality at that moment however kind of shocking it might have been to him he wanted to know um better the devil you know I guess and um and for me it took a lot of the power and shame out of that disordered thinking because I was like okay well I have said it out loud to someone that loves me and they still love me so maybe yeah my doubts about myself or thinking oh god if I if they ever find this out they'll think I'm a terrible human Mm. maybe that's not actually the case so maybe not everything the disorder tells me is to be believed and I think yeah we've kind of found a bit of a balance with that I mean it is it's really hard it's brutally hard um if you're in a relationship um and especially then when you're kind of co-parenting because of course my husband needed to protect me and our children and that sometimes it, that felt that was directly at odds with each other mm. um yeah I don't know if that's helpful no I think I think that was um a really good kind of overview and I, I guess kind of the thing that point pinpointed me was just that honesty again of both of you being open and honest with each other about how you were feeling and I think often you know the person that's supporting someone with an eating disorder can can maybe hide their feelings or you know not not say how they're feeling but I think it has to be kind of on the both sides um absolutely so, so yeah Thank you so much, Abby. I, I honestly, I'm so annoyed that I have to go because I've got so much more that I want to ask you. Um, I know, I've talked your ear off. For, for <laughs> no, I've, I've absolutely I'm loved going it. hoarse because of it. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I hope, yeah, I hope something I've shared today has been helpful. And, no, it really um, has. I think I, the thing that I appreciate the most was just your honesty about kind of the the way that it made you feel and kind of that, pull between you know wanting to to be a good mum quote-unquote and then also the pull of the eating disorder because I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that and Mm. and maybe not ever have said it out loud because it you know it is something that's a difficult thing to kind of process so yeah thank you so much it's been a real pleasure to talk to you thank you so much I found that conversation with Abby really difficult in terms of the fact that she had such significant struggles and just wasn't heard during her pregnancy. But whilst the conversation was difficult, I think it's so important that we do have these conversations to understand the impact that pregnancy can have on eating disorders and the impact that eating disorders can have on a pregnancy. It allows clinicians and the doctors and the medical teams that will be working with pregnant women to understand what they're going through and maybe to screen for eating disorders in a more productive manner. Next week, we'll be joined by Zoe John. Zoe is a BEAT ambassador and Zoe has struggled with bulimia, OSFED and binge eating disorder. And she also is in an abusive relationship. Together we explore how the eating disorder and the abusive relationship tied in together, as well as the different thoughts that she had when she had the different eating disorders. You know, most of the time when you're in an abusive relationship, you don't realise it's abusive. So you kind of feed off the positive comments because you think, oh, this you know, this is what a relationship's meant to be like. You, you need to kind of please your partner. And if the only time your partner's giving you compliments about how much weight you lost, you're just 
going to keep doing that. Well, that's you know that's what I did. I thought right if I if I looked a certain way and then became more attractive, then we'll be happier. But you know not the case. And it, it's that when I became that kind of shell of the person I am now and was before, a lot of it was just fueling that desire to be desired and to kind of be in this kind of super ideal relationship if you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe eating disorders are crippling illnesses but with the right support they can be recovered from we really hope you enjoyed this episode but if you require more support right now please look into charities such as first steps and beat for support or talk to someone you trust